Hey, I'm Paul. And I'm Christian. Welcome to I'm Dying to Tell You, inspiration shared by our mom who is dying from ALS. There is no cure for our mom or anyone else with ALS. But right now, she's on a mission to find and share stories of inspiration. Coming to you from Cincinnati, Ohio, we're happy to introduce the one lady we both loved since the first day we laid eyes on her. The queen of the Queen City, our mom, your host, Lori. Hello, I'm Lori, your host of I'm Dying to Tell You. Every time I hear that intro, (laughs) it makes me smile. I love my guys so much. And man, I miss them right now. I'm in Ohio. One's in Manhattan and the other is in Austin. What happened? (laughs) Oh, hey, I am so happy that you're here. This is a a special episode. This is part one of me sitting down with three others that have ALS. And we are talking about the stuff that's really hard to talk about when you have a terminal illness that has no cure. Everything from telling your children, your friends, your community, to talking about their experience with conversations that have been really good or not so good. And just a lot of insights and recommendations from people who have been thrown into a situation where a lot of tough conversations have come to the forefront of their life. I am so darn grateful for the three guests that are joining me today, Amy Steins, Jim Pluzogan, and Matt Klingenberg. Okay, lots of tough stuff to talk about. So let's get to our chat. So this idea came from Jim. (laughs) Jim, I love your idea. Yeah. It came from people that I've been connecting with. I passed those along to Lori just because I'd been hearing other people say to me that, you know, some of these things had been continued to be difficult so absolutely no i these are like i think so important questions that like lori said you know they're hard hard to ask and talk about but i know it benefits so many people especially me when lori i think you did something similar a while back kind of Mm -hmm. and it was so helpful yeah Okay, let's kind of lean in. So I'm here with three who are living with ALS and are willing to talk about those things that are hard to talk about, the conversations that are incredibly hard around ALS. And not only for other people who are 
in our situation to learn from, but people that aren't even in our ALS community. So I have Amy, Jim, and Matt. Thank you all for being here. Thank our you. <laughs> okay, why don't we start with brief introductions so that everyone knows who you are and a little bit about your background. So who wants to go first? Amy? <laughs> Ladies first. <laughs> um, my name is Amy. I am 50 years old. I just turned 50 a few months back. I was diagnosed when I turned 48 with limb onset. I have been a stay-at-home mom most of my life, part-time jobs, but so grateful that, you know, I've been able to be a stay-at-home mom. I have three children. They're all in college and <laughs> they're all still living at home. Um, so I'm grateful for the time that I have with them. Yeah. And then I'm married to my husband of 20, it'll be 27 years. So yes. nice. Nice. All right, Jim. I'm Jim. I live in Charlottesville, Virginia. I am uh, going to be 67 this June. My wife and I have been married for 45 years. Wow. Oh, married yeah. We have two kids that are grown and still very close family. I'm a retired pediatrician. A good part of my uh, work has been with children with medical complexity and disabilities. So ironically, mm -hmm. I spend a good chunk of my professional life advocating for and taking care of kids with very similar disabilities that people have with ALS. Mm -hmm. um, and I was diagnosed in November of 2021 with limb onset. All right, Matt. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. My name is Matt Singenberg. I am 37 years old. I was diagnosed when I was 32, so um, mm. kind of a young diagnosis. Um, mm. I had limb onset in my left arm, and uh, after I was diagnosed, I worked for a couple three years after diagnosis. And um, after a couple of years, we moved up to Brandon, South Dakota to get some extra help with our three kids. Uh, my children are seven, five, and three. So boy, oh <laughs> girl, we have a busy house, especially at night. Oh, I bet. Oh. So you have two boys and your youngest is a girl, right? Yeah, one oh. little princess. And oh, of she course. <laughs> she was born after my diagnosis. My wife wanted one more kid. And so, mm. we, uh, well, we'll see how this goes. But yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it went pretty well. <laughs> yeah, she is super. Aww. Uh, well, I love this. You guys all have a little bit different backgrounds, and we're talking about tough conversations, and you all have children, but at different ages, you know, so this is going to be good, because I know as a mom with ALS, the toughest conversation around ALS has been with 
my children. So we'll get to that. Why don't we start with the toughest conversation, the first one. When you hear that you have a terminal illness with no cure. So this conversation is coming from a medical professional. Does anyone want to share their experience with that moment? Yes, I'm guessing my story is like many others where there was kind of a suspicion that it could be ALS. Um, So they had the constant twitching in my arm and uh, did all these different tests, MRIs, um, you know, spinal taps, um, every type of blood test, and a couple of EMGs. And then finally, uh, they did the EMG in my hand that showed the fibrillations. Mm-hmm. I was in a little hospital room at uh, Iowa City at the University of Iowa hospitals and we were in this just little dark room and um, the doctor said well I'm gonna go out for a minute and uh, look at these results so I was sitting in this room by myself Mm. thinking that this probably isn't good Mm. so I um, just started looking at at pictures of my kid, you know, and that that helped pass the time. And um, the doctor came in and he had another neurologist and they said, we think you have ALS. It was like complete shock, even though I was thinking that might be the case. It Mm -hmm. still hits you like a ton of bricks. It's like, that one moment changes the whole direction of your life. Mm-hmm. It's a hard, a hard moment when you hear that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was 37 when I was diagnosed. And I remember the doctor saying, you know, after I got dressed, did the EMG and all that. And he came back in, he said, what do you know? about what this could be. And, you know, now I look back and I'm like, he was feeling me out to try to understand, is she ready for this news? Should I tell her everything? How should I deliver this tough news? You know, and I had put in fasciculations, cramps, muscle loss, and boom, 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 kept coming up ALS. So I just instinctively said ALS. And he said, yeah, you're right. And when he said that, now that I look back, he had this sense of relief because I think he was so nervous. And when he knew that I knew or that I, you know, had a suspicion, he had this relief come over him. And Jim, (laughs) you were a healthcare provider. Do you think that that was right? I think you're spot on, Lori. Okay. I think you, you're completely spot on. I, th- mm-hmm. I think that some physicians are so overwhelmed psychologically with having to mm-hmm. get this terrible news that they unwittingly 
delay the diagnosis sometimes, delay getting people where they need to get to because it's so devastating for them to think about having to give that diagnosis to someone, maybe not so much neurologists, but I don't know, in the last year or so, as we've been exploring this in IMALS about delayed diagnosis, I've been hearing a number of stories of neurologists that have never seen ALS and likewise mm -hmm. concerned about making this life-changing diagnosis. And um, so I think you're spot on with that. And I think it was rather kind of him to ask the question first. Is it was it a him? Was it a man? Uh, was, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it was rather kind to start with that curious question. And I think the relief might have also been that then he felt like there was going to be an opportunity to engage in a conversation, you know, because you had the, like the shock factor was sort of diminished a little bit, and then you, you know, you might have some other questions, and it might flow forward. It, I think it's hardest to give bad news when the person is, you know, unprepared or maybe in a lot of denial because it's just more complicated. But yeah. 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 So tell me about your experience with that first tough conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a physician and mm -hmm. I was taking care of these kids with complexity and knew about motor neuron disease. Of course, my wife happens to also be an internist and my daughter isn't doctor. So all of her friends are doctors. <laughs> I, you know, ironically though, Lori, that like when I was actually thinking about these things too, uh, when I plugged in certain symptoms early on and ALS popped up, I was like, oh no, gosh. Um, um, in the medical community, people talk about ALS like the doctor's most feared diagnosis for themselves, ironically. And so, no, we got, we, we had a very kind neurologist and we kind of knew what was happening. And as we were going through the workup and everything was normal, you know, with MRIs and those kinds of things, being a diagnosis of exclusion, we knew we were getting closer and closer to a diagnosis of ALS. But just like Matt said, or like you said, it's like, even though you know that that's the top or the most likely thing, when you receive the news of like the, yes, this is what it is. I thankfully, Matt, I was with my wife and my adult son. The three of us were together. So I can't imagine what that was like for you on your own. But yeah, um, I just felt cracked open. You know, I felt like dizzy. I felt like I've heard so many people describe it as a haze, like, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. like in a daze or a haze, even though intellectually I knew that this was likely what it was. My wife and son described the same thing. We were all just kind of the next day or so, or maybe days, I don't know, we were kind of, we just felt, yeah, out of space and time kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that feeling. I talked to a few people yesterday who were diagnosed early 30s and in their 20s. And someone was telling me that it just was like that Charlie Brown, wah, wah, wah. you know, <laughs> like, like you hear them talking, but <laughs> yeah. you're, you're a little somewhere else. And, yes. you know, um, Amy, what about you? So I think um, ALS, you know, mimics so many other things that I thought were just like, okay, 
I'm, you know, turning close to 50. I'm getting Mm -hmm. older. Just thought it was arthritis or something. So I went to an arthritis doctor Mm -hmm. and like Matt said, you know, you go through all these tests, blood work and everything and to try to find what it is or, and she said, I have to refer you to a neurologist. Mm -hmm. It might be ALS. And I was like, Mm. what is ALS? Like, she has no idea what she's talking about. Oh. And I mean, oh. this was in my head, you know, just talking out loud. Mm-hmm. And I kind of put it off for like a couple of weeks, but the twitching just got so bad that I was like, I'm going to go and get it checked out. And, you know, they go through all the testing. I had to wait like two weeks and my husband went with me and he came in and the doctor and told the news and it was just like an outer body experience. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. I heard the words and was watching my husband, you know, burst into tears. And, Mm -hmm. but I was like consoling him. I was just Mm -hmm. in a state of shock. It was just like, you, you hear the words, but you're like, it's not real. You know, I wasn't there like my mind, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Really hard. Because they said it might be ALS. And then you had a couple of weeks before your definite diagnosis. So you were more mentally, I don't know, prepared is the right word, but familiar with ALS. Yeah, I tried really hard not to go on Google. and (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I know they say don't do that, but, mm -hmm. you know, easier said than done. And yeah, yeah. I So I I looked it up and... I remember my mom saying, you don't know anything yet. So why worry? You know, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I really tried to put that into, per- you know, like practice. You just what do you think about the way that the news or the conversation was from the doctor to you about that? The doctor that I saw for this, he was very just matter of fact mm-hmm. and Uh, you know, I'm very sorry, but he left the room and gave my husband and I time to be alone. So Mm -hmm. it's delivery. I mean, he, like I said, was just very matter of fact. No, I think these things, and, you know, we work so hard to train the newer doctors about giving news and sticking around. I'm sorry you had that experience. Yeah. It's not what could be, you know. Right. Well, let's stay on healthcare professionals for a minute, what do we want them to know? That's really important when you're talking about this tough diagnosis. Anyone? I can start with a a recent example. Mm -hmm. I, I went to see a physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor last week. And I was really looking forward to it because I'm now needing to use a wheelchair more and walking assistance and different things. I'm having a lot of spasms and was looking for some help with some of this. And as a young guy, came highly recommended. What I really liked was he came in and he sat down and he said, I've read through your record, you know, completely, but I'd like to hear a story from you. So why don't you start from the beginning? And he just sat there 
and let me tell my story again, even though he had reviewed all of the information so far. And he just sat there for as long as it took for me to tell the story in my own words. In fact, you know, I I was feeling a little shy about it. I said, shall I go on? Is this okay? Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to hear it all. Just tell me all of it. Hmm. He didn't interject or, you know, like uh, adjust what I was saying or he waited till I finished all of it. And then he asked some clarifying questions. Then he gave his synopsis back to me and said, I guess these are the things. And from what you said, these would be the things we want to work on. And I just felt so connected to him mm. in that way. And so trusting, you know, like, yeah, he knew my, my data, <laughs> yeah. but he also known my story. And yeah. I thought, wow, that was a really great start to a therapeutic relationship. Yeah. He was investing in you from the beginning. Mm. Yeah. I like that. Matt, Amy, you guys have anything that you would say? Yeah, I've had similar experiences to that. And I've also had experiences where the doctor that I was going to see, the pulmonologist or whoever it was, did not do any homework on my case. Mm. And you walk in and they're like, kind of, it seems like, they have no idea why you're there. They um, don't know all that much about ALS. And you just walk out of there feeling like you wasted mm-hmm. an hour and mm-hmm. um, got no benefit out of that meeting. Yeah, yeah. But most of the doctors that I see are really invested. Um, they will read my notes clarify any things that they have questions about and uh, genuinely seem like they care yeah so yeah yeah okay i the doctor that i see now is just so compassionate and you know just honest and the first Mm -hmm. thing that he said to my husband and i is amy i will not let you go into financial debt over trials or things that I do not believe in because, you know, as we all know, this disease is very expensive. Like, you know, a lot of insurance stuff doesn't cover it. And he was, he said, I will be brutally honest. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was so comforting because my first instinct was to try to go to all these trials, you know, that were offering all over the United States. And I would ask him about it and he would say, no, that's not worth it or be totally honest with me. So Mm -hmm. I really, really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. So you felt this trust and I know who you're talking about. (laughs) We love our Dr. Neil. (laughs) Yes, we do. And he's great. Like, and I know he's been recognized, I think, for being such a compassionate doctor I think the first thing that we would say about him is he has a great bedside manner. And man, does that go a long way? You know, just that comfort of being able to ask questions and trusting them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about you were diagnosed 
you have the information, and now you have to go tell people in your life. So I recently talked to John Driscoll Hopkins from the Zach Brown band, and something he said sticks with me. When I asked him that question about telling people, he said, we thought of it like, who do we burden first? We thought about a hierarchy of people and whose day do we ruin first? And that really struck me. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about telling family. Or, okay, you all have kids. Talk mm-hmm. about kids first. I'll start. I, my children knew that I had a big doctor's appointment that day. And after the doctor's appointment, my husband and I went for a drive just to talk about how we were going to tell our children. Mm-hmm. And we just said, we thought honesty was just the best way to go about it. And we got home and we all sat in one room and just told them the news. And it was the hardest, one of the hardest days of my life. And Sorry, Lori. <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> seeing the fear in their faces and the tears and not being able to fix it as a mom, it was mm-hmm. and is extremely difficult. But I somehow had the grace and the strength to tell them that, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm strong and I'm going to fight till the end. And it was the hardest moment. Again, it felt like one of those out of outer body experiences where like, you're just going from, for me, it was like one kid to another. I was just hugging them each Mm -hmm. one differently at different times. Right. Yeah. And at that time they were all teenagers, right? Yeah. To say that. Okay. Yes. And then Jim, yours or owner, young adults at the time. Yeah, Williams at the time was in late 20s and in law school, and he had a break to be able to be with us. So he was there for the diagnosis. And when we came home, my daughter is married and lives in Boston. She's in, uh, you know, finishing up her residency in medicine. And she knew all this was coming and mm-hmm. need to Google things as well. So mm-hmm. we, we actually did that via Zoom. And yeah, it's just um, hard to find words for it, actually. And um, what you just said, Amy, about that role shift is the way I would describe it, too. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, dad, husband are the top of my list of mm-hmm. who I am. And uh, to have it have the shift focused now back on me and to know that I'm going to have limited more and more limited ways of helping them taking care of them being there for them yes. uh, that was what i was thinking about now uh you know it wasn't they weren't i think thinking about that at all they were just in shock and whatever my son you know i said was with us and we were sitting on the couch the three of us trying to figure out what to say to aaron when we called and how to get this you know how just plan it out a little bit. Maybe we'll talk about that a little later. But 
William said, our family's always been so close and energetic and approach things with a lot of energy. He said, I guess now it's time for us to become turbocharged. That's the word he used. Mm-hmm. So he said, our family is now going to be need to be turbocharged. And he didn't mean just in terms of taking care of me, but that's also what he meant. But he, you know, it was all the adventure, joy, intimacy, mm-hmm. happiness. You know, we were just going to like put it into overdrive now. Mm-hmm. And our family has really taken that on. That's <laughs> how we're turbocharged. And, I love that. And my wife and I just looked at him and thought, wow, you know, such a wise soul. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Our yeah. son. So I think also because my kids are older, they are adults, right? So yeah, right. Um, they have their own maturity and their mm-hmm. own to bring to it. So something that Peggy and I didn't really anticipate because we're, you know, the parents was how much they were going to bring to this in terms of their own thoughts and feelings and ideas and responses and help yeah. and all. So. Yeah. So, so hard. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. Matt, yours are little. They're still little. Yeah. So, yeah, let's uh, talk about that. When I was diagnosed, we were living in Des Moines, Iowa, which is about two hours away from Iowa City, mm-hmm. where I was diagnosed. So I got my diagnosis and I had a couple hours to mentally prepare myself how I was going to tell my wife. That was the first one mm-hmm. and uh, and by far the most difficult thing I've ever done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my wife is, she is a physical therapist and she had worked in ALS clinics. Mm-hmm rotation their internships and those so she knew exactly what was happening mm-hmm. um or what would happen if i got that diagnosis mm-hmm. so i got home and i just told her the first thing she said was oh my god your kids won't even know you they won't even remember you mm-hmm. Our oldest was two at the time, and our middle was six weeks old. So Mm. we had a little crew at that time. Mm. And we just hugged for a long time, and I told her it would be okay, that we would fight this and get through it the best we could. Mm -hmm. And so after that, called both of the parents, and um, they did some of the other heavy lifting for us. My parents uh, told my brother and sister Mm. for us, so at least we didn't have to do it over and over that first day. Mm -hmm. And and then most of our uh, little tribe knew within the first 48 hours, I guess. Mm -mm. And more as telling our kids them, you know, they're so little. Yeah. Yeah. Little too. We haven't got into a lot of the specifics about it with them. Mm-hmm. As of now, they know that I need some help and I have bad legs, is what they say. Oh. With a walker. 
They always tease me for being slow. Aww. <laughs> and again, they're seven, five, and three, right? Yeah. Yeah. But we haven't discussed the fact that, you know, I'll probably die before they, you know, get to certain milestones or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, they wouldn't understand it, I think, at this point. My wife and I don't see any reason to burden them with this big, heavy news. Yeah, yeah. Down the road, as it progresses more, we'll have to have those conversations. But, you know, hopefully hopefully it's a bunch of years yet. Yeah, you never know. You never know. You might be there. You never know. So what advice do you have for someone that's listening that's just diagnosed about telling your children? And one thing I'm going to say is I feel like, you know, I've been in this community for 19 years, that what I've witnessed is I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm saying it seems to be healthier when the family that has ALS is honest with their children if it's age appropriate. Because I've seen families literally not tell the children at all until the end. Um, They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to tell them. And, you know, inclusion, I think, is a really healthy thing in our world and in a family and not including the children in our fight can do them, you know, not be so good. So one thing I would say is I feel like to be open and honest in a way that is right for that child. Anyone else have any advice? I agree with you, Lori. Um, For me, just to be honest with Mm -hmm. my children, like you said, because of their age, be as transparent as I can with them Mm -hmm. and let them see for me too. Like, I think I'm grieving with them. Mm -hmm. It's all right for them to see me grieve and cry because it's, it's natural. It's a natural emotion. And when they cry, I, there's times where I'm holding them up. And Mm. when, when I cry, you know, it's just, I, we're just a very open communication with it all. Yeah. It's like a shared grief. Exactly. You know, shared grief. That's exactly right. Yeah. Anyone else? I'm just kind of composing my thoughts here Mm because I agree with everything you've both said, and it rings true for me as as a person, but also as a physician or pediatrician, you know, helping countless families through difficult situations. I think that you're right, Lori, you have to find the right way, and it depends on the family, and it depends on the age of the child, it depends on the maturity of the child, all those things. But another little mantra from the Pluzogan family is keep it real. We're just, we're trying to live life and allow ALS to become integrated into our lives and keep it real. 
And so in that conversation, you know, I think we've mentioned the word honesty, and I think that's true. I like the word real a little better because, I don't know, it just feels more present or in the moment or mm. non-judgmental, you know, like honest, dishonest or something. Mm. But um, yeah, being able to share the reality of it. And I think also what I've noticed in my life in this way, and now again, in a real way with ALS personally, is that when you share this news, when you tell people, when you keep it real, that allows them to have their own opportunity to step into it and to make it real for themselves. And, you know, you never want to say that ALS brings good things or whatever, but in reality, any adversity that you step into, there is the opportunity to make meaning from it. And there is the opportunity for things to come from it that you wouldn't expect. And I don't mean to be Pollyanna here or sugarcoated, but I think if we don't give people that opportunity, then we don't give them the opportunity for the full range of living through it in their own way and with us. And I don't know, kind of shortchanging them in a way if we don't include. And I know it's really hard. And so you asked, well, if someone's newly diagnosed and trying to figure this out, mm-hmm. what do you do? Well, if it's so hard, if it's really hard for you, you don't know what to do, then do what you do when anything else is hard. Find someone to help you, you know, mm-hmm. talk mm-hmm. to a pastor, talk to your a doctor, a specialist doctor, talk to a therapist, a social worker, talk to a close friend who's been through hard things mm. and get someone to help you do this because it is hard. I mean... We're all invented along the way when we're doing it. You know, we're doing the best that we can do. It's never perfect. So um, I do agree with you, Lori, that it's it's really important. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like in the end, everyone wants to do something to help. And if you involve your children with the conversation and keeping it real, then they have the opportunity to help in the way that they can. You know, Matt, even if they're little, you know, they can go get your shoes or help you, you know, whatever. I'm sure that your little kids feel like they help daddy. And that's really important and meaningful to them, right? Even though they're little. So um, we talked about, Amy, you and I have talked about this. About inviting conversation to teenagers, young adults that, you know, might not always have something to say, (laughs) might not want to talk about it. And I was telling you, and this is way back when, and if it's okay to mention this, if it's not, I can edit it out. But um, I remember giving you a suggestion like, why don't you have a Wednesday night meal at your favorite restaurant or bring in your favorite meal and you dedicate that night to them asking you questions about what's going on. And I think it was so you were concerned that you don't want it to be about ALS every day, all day, you know? So I was saying, 
what about carving out a dedicated time to say, ask me anything, share your concerns. And of course, you can do it whenever you want. But we're going to have this time set aside. Yes. If you want to wait until then, we can talk about it and then move on. And right. I'm curious if you've done that. <laughs> or, <laughs> or, you know, if you want to just talk about if you agree with that or the value of that, it just gives young adults or kids or anyone the invitation to talk about the hard things. Right. Yes. Um, each one of my kids, I feel like, are handling it so differently, all three of them. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to navigate each one, you know, like their feelings and mm-hmm. and they're wanting to talk about it mm-hmm. as you, Matt and Jim, you probably know, like the grief hits them at different times, you know? Yeah. And it's like, I'll get a call from my daughter. She's at the university of Kentucky and it'll be, you know, 12 o'clock in the afternoon and she'll be crying, you know, about me. Mm. And so I, it's like these different situations and moments that happen with each one mm-hmm. and more, yes like you suggesting that like I I love it it's um so helpful it's really hard when they're in college and like different schedules but yeah yeah I feel like each one of them we've had a lot of special conversations I you know hard tough conversations at different times yeah yeah and you're following your mom heart you're following you know their lean and their needs and their timing exactly and i think that's that's absolutely perfect yes yeah i just don't want them to ever be afraid to ask Mm -hmm. me anything yeah i hopefully i made that clear with them yeah yeah i think you have do we want to switch from family and kids and talk about those outside your family, the conversation about your new season of life, living with a terminal illness that doesn't have a cure, about your conversations with friends. Is that different or how is that different? So for me, I'll say that over 19 years, I have noticed that a lot of people don't ask me about it. Now, I'm also very public and very active on social media, so I gotta tell people whether you want to know or not. But they don't really say like, no, really, like, no, really. Like, how are you doing? And even in the beginning, I feel like there was a withdrawal of people that wouldn't come around as much. And I look back now And I really feel like it was that uncomfortable space in that they didn't know what to say. They were very sensitive to, does she want to talk about it? Should I talk about it? You know, is she tired of talking about it? Um, All of those things that going through their mind that made them do nothing or say nothing. Do you guys see any of that or... You, you just want to make an observation about tough conversations around ALS 
with your community? I'll start. And, um, mm-hmm. well, my first point would go back to the initial time that you tell friends. And, um, like, for instance, I would tell people and they would not really have much to say. And I came to realize it's because people in general do not know anything about ALS. And so you could tell them, like, oh, yeah, I've been diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. But it was always helpful to step back and tell them what Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, is mm-hmm. and how it's going to affect you. Mm-hmm. You know, then they can ask questions because if you just hit somebody with the news, their brain is spinning and they don't even know how to respond because mm-hmm. they don't know what the disease is. So I Good think point. it's maybe a little on the on the patient and um, be kind to your friends when you tell them and maybe give them a little background on what the disease is, and Mm -hmm. then that will open up some avenue for them to ask questions. Yeah, that's a great point. Yes, it is. Yeah, that's a great point, because they don't know what they don't know. They don't, so then, therefore, they don't know what to ask or what to say, what's appropriate to say in their mind. So... That's good. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. With my friends, I have a really close group of friends. And it, ALS does change the dynamics because, you know, my friends and I used to go out to the bar and watch football games or go golfing or, you know, any number of activities. And I'm not really able to do that anymore. So um, now I just talk to my friends on the phone. I think they get enough information about my diagnosis and how it's progressing, either through my parents or quick conversations with me, mm-hmm. that they stay informed, but they're not overly, um, you know, they don't pry. Mm-hmm. They know well. I will tell them what I want them to know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's yeah. more about you know family, kids, and work, and just normal conversations with me. Yeah, and I think there's a balance there, right? You want people to be comfortable to ask you how are you feeling today, or you know, kind of like a check in. But then you also want them to talk about normal stuff, basketball, whatever you normally would talk about. You want to be a part of that. And you want normalcy and you don't want to be left out. So it is kind of a balance, I think. I agree, Lori and Matt. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about tough conversations with our children, with our friends, with our community. What about tough conversations about really hard topics that is instinctively 
we want to even avoid. Like, where do we want to be buried? What kind of funeral do we want? Are we going to go on a trade? You know, let's talk about some of that. So, <laughs> where do we start? <laughs> uh, I gave you a lot there. Um, okay, to my listeners, I think this is a really good spot to cut this episode and we'll pick up right here on part two of this conversation. I hate to keep you hanging. <laughs> oh, but this is going so, so well. I wanted to continue the conversation. So I'm going to do that. And then we're going to split it into two parts. So please come back and listen to part two of Tough Conversations Around ALS. Uh, thank you all for being here and to my guests for being so willing and open and honest about tough conversations around ALS. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast and then you automatically get notified when part two is released. I release new episodes of inspiration on the second and the fourth Tuesday of each month. But it's really nice to get that reminder <laughs> that a new episode's come out. Another way to know what's coming up is to follow me on social media. I am pretty much everywhere at I'm Dying to Tell You podcast. Thank you so very much for being here. Until next time, know you are loved and not alone. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to our mom. Make sure to visit her website at imdyingtotellyoupodcast.com where you'll find photos and show notes about this episode. If you liked the show, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. Thank you.